0: with 100 delicious healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N O O M.com. Grab your copy of the Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Hey, everybody, I'm Chelsea Handler, and these are the movies that changed my life.
1: Hey, everyone, I'm Ian DeBorja, and welcome to IMDb's Movies That Changed My Life a podcast where your favorite stars break down the films that made them who they are today. This week's guest is six-time New York Times best-selling author, comedian and activist Chelsea Handler. You may know Chelsea from her many TV shows, stand-up specials, books and films like Hello Privilege, It's Me Chelsea, but you can now buy the new paperback version of her most recent book, Life Will Be the Death of Me, and You Too. In addition to discussing the movies that changed her life, Chelsea and I talk about her personal growth over the last year and her upcoming HBO Max stand-up special. Before we start, I want to give a quick shout-out to The Burner 77 for the awesome review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, if you haven't yet, don't forget to leave us a review, and I'll give you a shout-out next week. Thanks for listening. Here's Movies That Changed My Life with Chelsea Hamlet. So let's jump into that. So Life Will Be the Death of Me and You Too uh, was already released on uh, audiobook and hardcover, and now it's getting a paperback release. Uh, on june twenty third, very, very exciting. So do you want to talk about what the book is all about?
0: Yeah, so I've written a bunch of books, but this is the first book where I really kind of I went to therapy for the first serious time with the intention of actually fixing something when I was forty. And when I came out of it, I wrote this book because he just took me down the road. I thought I never had to go, which is like, you know, my childhood and trauma, that from that. But he took me down it in a way where I came out the other side and my life was completely different for having done the work. And I had to share that because, I mean, my whole career is about oversharing stupid stuff. So I was excited (laughs) to be able to overshare something profound and meaningful that transformed my life. And I just knew, like, A, not everybody has access or has the ability to go see a therapist, obviously. So if I could impart any wisdom or help anybody else who's struggling with, you know, a grief or trauma from their childhood, which every single person seems to be, um, then I thought it would help people. And, you know, the response from the book was so incredible. And being on the book tour, I hadn't done that in so many years. So it was just a really exciting time to, like, also, show off this like new part of me that I had never been comfortable with before,
1: yeah. it's deeply, deeply personal, um, very emotional. I mean, I, I listen to the audiobook portion as well. And there's some parts where you're really, uh sort of putting yourself out there in a different way like you said i mean people know you from any of your tv shows and stuff you don't hold anything back and i really love that in the book you hold you show a very different side of it um is it fair to say that i feel like every chapter is sort of basically your relationship with someone else in your family and sort of like mixed into modern you know sort of things that are happening around you um was that the intent going into the book or did that sort of happen as you were writing and laying out all your ideas
0: well, I did this in a more methodical way than I've written any of my other books. And my stand-up show, I'm uh, doing a stand-up special for HBO Max, which is basically off of the book. I took the book and I put it in stand-up form because I wanted to have the emotional kind of roller coaster. I wanted to have the hilariousness of going to therapy and self-awareness and finding out you're just a fucking you know, being like, oh my God, really? Is that how I'm coming across? I thought I was just being direct and like honest. And they're like, like you know, building self-awareness is a gift in and of itself to even because you know, you don't have to get it until you need it. And then you're like, it sometimes could be a little bit too late, you know? Um, yeah. better late than ever. So it was and I wanted to be able to mirror that. I wanted to do a stand-up show that wasn't just about telling jokes. I wanted it to have a message from beginning and to end. And so In being on this book tour for Life Will Be the Death of Me and then turning it into a stand-up show and slowly working my way back to stand-up is just kind of like, it's like I'm coming home to the very thing that gave me my career in the first place after I just did the deep work, you know? And now I enjoy it again and I have something to say.
1: Uh, so in the book, you speak at length about the Enneagram test, which is a personality test that will tell you, uh, one of the nine different types of personality you fall into. There is the reformer, the helper, the achiever, the individualist, the investigator, the loyalist, the enthusiast, the challenger, and the peacemaker. And, uh, I took the test myself to see what type I got. Um, so I got a three, which is the achiever followed by eight, which is the challenger, uh, like you, and then seven as the enthusiast, um, So we match kind of similar in a lot of the ways. And I thought it was, oh, that's cool. And then we kind of get going. Do you you still see yourself as like a challenger first, Um, especially after like a year has been passed from your sort of growth? Do you still see yourself that way?
0: Oh, yeah, that's a good question. I haven't thought about that. No, you know. Um, Yeah, I mean, I'm always going to be like a fixer. I think of it as a fixer. Like I always want to go in and be like, okay, I'll fix this. I definitely changed a lot. Like I am you know, I'm definitely a more mature, more grown-up person. I'm still ridiculously stupid and con- you know, and nonsensical <laughs> and like I'm stoned half the time. But you know, like I'm definitely wiser and I know now not to insert myself into everything. I know to like hang back and that not everybody needs my opinion all the time. Um I think I'm more judicious about giving it more sparingly and I just think your work gets sharper as you get more clarity. And from therapy, I got a lot of clarity. And it was, you know, it's heart-wrenching to have to go through the worst moments of your life or the most terrible moments you can remember. But it's also like a huge gift.
1: Uh, you open up the book, speaking at length of your crush on Robert Mueller. Uh, do you, has Fauci taken your heart's, no, uh, your heart Cuomo, lately?
0: Cuomo! Cuomo! Cuomo? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like Cuomo. I wrote it okay, so- for Rob, for vogue.com uh, about for about him about my love for him. Listen, competency at this point is a huge aphrodisiac, okay? We all know that. We're all dehydrated from some from having a leader. So anybody who even looks like a leader and plus old guys are my demo. That is like my hot zone. So I love <laughs> old competent guys. <laughs>
1: Um, okay. That was my first question. Next one on this is, uh, you talk about the Aperol spritz. Do you have, what's your trademark Aperol spritz recipe or your proportions? Do you have one? I
0: do three, two, one part. I don't like it too sweet. So I do two parts Prosecco or champagne and then one part Aperol and one part club soda.
1: Nice. Like that. That's that's your go-to one. Yeah,
0: I, but I don't like that orangey. Like it's got to be very. I like the carbonation, but I don't like the sweet.
1: Now let's jump into the movies that changed Chelsea Handler's life. So the first one is 1989's Steel Magnolias. Uh, this has a 7.3 out of 10 on IMDb with 45,000 ratings. Directed by Herbert Ross, written by Robert Harling, who also wrote the play that the film was based off of. Um, This is starring Sally Field, Dolly Parton, Shirley MacLaine, Daryl Hannah, Olympia Dukakis, Julia Roberts, Tom Skerritt, and Dylan McDermott. Um, What a movie. But why don't you talk to us about the first time you saw Steve Magnolias?
0: Uh, What year did it come out? 89. 89. So I would have been 14. So I was... There's that scene in that movie where Julia Roberts dies, and Sally Field plays her mom, and she's just at the funeral after the funeral, and she's crying, and she's like, I just and and it's just you're watching it as a you know viewer, completely you know feeling this moment, and she's like, "I just want to hit somebody, I just want to hit somebody," and then somebody throws Olympia Dukakis in, and she's like, "Here, hit Weezer."
1: I just want to hit somebody till they feel as bad as I do. I just want to hit something. I want to hit it hard. <laughs> Here.
0: Hit this. Go ahead, Malin.
1: slopper. Are you crazy? Hit her. Are you high, Clary? Clary, have you lost your mind? We'll sell t-shirts saying I slapped of Boudreaux.
0: And you just go from that moment of, you know, hysterically crying to hysterical laughter. And that moment I wanted to recreate in stand-up and was the inspiration behind doing this show, Life Will Be the Death of Me. I wanted to have that moment where you go from hearing about the story the day my brother died into a ridiculous story about being on an airplane with somebody who's farting on me. Like, you know, I wanted it to have the depth that I haven't had in my stand-up before. And I also wanted it to have the silliness. Um, so that's why that movie changed my life. Cause that scene, I always think to for like great dramatic flair.
1: Yeah. That, I mean, obviously Sally Field is so unbelievable in that she got nominated uh, for best actress and drama for the golden globes and that um, another nominated actress in that film is uh, Julia Roberts getting her first nomination uh, for supporting actress in Oscar and golden globes. How amazing is Julia Roberts in steel magnolias? I mean, uh, I, I love Julie Roberts, and every movie she's in, she just steals every scene, which is incredible yeah. in *Ciel Magnolias* yeah. because there's so many huge actors in, at the time, and she's this young, you know, startup actress, and she is so so good. Um, do you have any memories of seeing Julie Roberts for the first time in this? She
0: like lights up the whole world, you know, with that smile and that like, uh, you, you know, her laugh and everything about her. She's just kind of, and she's so different than all the other actresses, you know. She's got her own unique thing going. So yeah, I grew up loving Julia Roberts. Who doesn't I ran into her actually in LA, probably like uh, I don't know, like six months ago at um I was going to do a podcast actually in some building, and I ran into her at the elevator and I was like, Hi, she's like <laughs> Chelsea Manler. She's like, You're just walking in here all by yourself. She had like eight people with her. Like, <laughs> yeah, just me. I'm like, I don't like people right now. So
1: I think my favorite line is from Julie Roberts. It says, I would rather have 30 minutes of wonderful than a lifetime of nothing special. Uh, I I think that sings very true, like to the way that I live my life. I sort of uh, look at life that way. And I kind of feel like you have that similar vibe in, in, in your eyes. Is that true to say?
0: Yeah. I think that, you know, I don't know. I like to go for it. I also like to, you know, sleep for 12 hours on end, (laughs) but when I go for it, I really like to go for it. I like to work hard. I like to play hard. I like to take breaks hard, you know, like I like to not work for a period of time so I can completely decompress. Um, but I'm spoiled. So, but I definitely like to have, you know, I like to get them. I like to get a lot out of life. I want to make sure people knew I was here.
1: A, you definitely have. I think that's definitely, so I think you've crossed that off your list, but uh, I, I did like that saying there. Is this a, a multi-rewatch for you? Like, have you seen this movie multiple times, or is that sort of something that yeah, stuck when I you feel saw it? Yeah,
0: it was always on, and it's got the best cast. It's like Olympia Dukakis, Sally Field, Daryl Hannah, Julia Roberts. I mean, it just goes, and Tom Skerritt's in there, and then Dylan McDermott, right?
1: hmm So the movie, it was on a $15 million budget. It made $96 million worldwide. But it actually made 40 million dollars from its DVD release in 2000. Um, again, well after the original release. So, why do you think it had such a big amount of sales? Uh, when it finally got that DVD release so many years after the original uh theatrical run,
0: I don't know why. Maybe because it's just that womanhood thing, you know, that like, like group of women together, like how powerful that is. And I think women's instincts sometimes in our culture, we're taught to like compete with each other rather than come together. So I think we always are warm hearted when we see women coming together and really like, even though they have their differences, they're on the same team. And, you know, that's one of the nice things that has come out of, you know, Donald Trump being elected is women coming together in a more serious way.
1: Um, and you bring that up. I mean, the name Steel Magnolias is a reference to, I think uh, Robert Harling said, you know, the women, the group of women featured in the film, they're can be delicate as flowers, but they're also hard to steal. I, I really love that, that sort of uh, analogy there. It, it makes sense for that. the movie. A woman for
0: you. We're tough and scrappy, but we also cry at the drop of a hat.
1: So something I like to think about also when I watch these movies with these huge stars at the peak uh, or the beginning of their massive careers is like, imagine the energy on that set, like walking on there and just seeing all these people. I mean, Dolly Parton right there, uh, Sally Field. I mean, it must, it must be incredible, uh, to, yeah. to, to be in that room, right? It's like the power and the inspiration there. Um, I think it's pretty clear for
0: all those women to be able to share those memories, you know, when you bond like that on a set or, I mean, I don't know if they did, I'm assuming they did, but to have those memories to share together, you know, for years, cause you go, you know, you become a movie star and then you go and you do that movie and this movie and, you form all these little families. It's like summer camp, and then, you know, you don't necessarily get to see them again.
1: Meg Ryan was actually supposed to play Shelby until she dropped for When Harry Met Sally. How do you, how do you feel about that?
0: I feel like that was a positive move for, for both of those women, right? She needs to yeah. When Harry Met Sally, and we needed Julia in that other one.
1: Yeah. So, I know
0: and, that. In that other one, my other favorite movie that <laughs> changed my life, whose name I can't remember. <laughs>
1: Yeah. My, my last note on this is that I am waiting for Julia Roberts to have another like crazy Oscar moment. I mean, everything I see her in that I, I rewatched pretty women just recently. And then this, I'm like, man, I, I need Julia Roberts to just have that big, like awesome Oscar moment. Um, I, I would love, love to see that one more time. I think she's, uh, she's so great. So sweet.
0: I would like to see that as well.
1: Any other things on steel Magnolia's
0: Uh, no, no, I just love that dynamic. You know, I think I just related so much to that female, those bonds and relationships that you're hitting somebody one second. It's like sisters, you know, when you're, either your sister's like the only one you could like stop fighting with and be like, okay, you know, go fuck yourself. Let's go see a movie. Like that works that kind of interaction, um, where you can get in a fight and still be together hugging two seconds later.
1: Yeah. And, um, it's, Again, like, especially for 1989, I mean, people now are, like, pining for films about that sort of, you know, feminine message and feminist message about how uh, strong women are sticking together in the face of tragedy, and and this there is one right here. It's a great movie from 89, Steel Magnolias, so... All right, let's get to your second pick, which is Jaws from 1975, uh, the classic. This is 8 out of 10 on IMDb with 530,000 ratings, directed by Steven Spielberg written by Peter Benchley and Carl Gottlieb, uh, also based off the novel, written by Peter Benchley as well, starring Roy Scheider, Robert Shaw, Richard Dreyfuss, and Lorraine Gary. I don't need to introduce Jaws, I'm sure. So talk to us. When was the first time you saw Jaws?
0: Uh, Well, it was filmed in 1975. That's the year I was born. So I probably saw it for the first time when I was like five or six. My brothers and sisters, it was filmed right in front of our summer house in Martha's Vineyard. So they saw the mechanical shark, Bruce, that played the shark, like go swim back and forth through the Bay. So they didn't go, my brothers and sisters never swam in the Bay where that movie was shot. Even after the movie had finished filming, they were (laughs) scared of the mechanical shark. But I grew up after that, but I saw the movie and we knew a lot of people on the Island that were in the movie. So the movie, it it didn't, I wouldn't say it was, it defines my life because I grew up in Martha's Vineyard in the summer times and my whole life is like what that movie is. Like at the beach, like my whole childhood, my whole teenage years. It just, it was like a It was like, well, I remember watching that at five, and I'm like, oh, this is what it's going to be like when I'm a teenager. And sure enough, it was. And sure enough, by the way, now there are sharks everywhere in Cape Cod. <laughs> so. Oh really? <laughs> yeah, they're everywhere. I just saw a new a thing on the news the other night. They were like, they they've tagged like 200 sharks in the Cape Cod area, great whites. It's like what?
1: Our life repeating art, right? Um, yeah. Art. In so. The- Art, I'm life—that's what it is. Um, so it's funny. I, your first memory or your siblings' first memory of Jaws is the mechanical shark. So I lived in—I uh, grew up in San Francisco and used to go to the Universal Studios uh, theme park in LA uh, when I was a kid, and that was actually my first experience with Jaws. Was are you familiar with the Universal Backlot Tour?
0: Oh yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah. So for those who aren't familiar, uh, it's basically like a 40-minute ride at Universal Studios where you get in a tram and they take you through the filming backlots. And they show you different sets and stuff like that, like the psycho house is there and like the, the street from Desperate Housewives. But the big pinnacle of it is it actually they have a recreation uh, of the beach from Jaws and then Bruce like, jumps out at you from the water. So that was actually my first memory is when I was a kid as I saw that and I had this vision of like this shark. And then I later saw it um, in the film. Terrifying. Uh, were you scared watching that as like a five or six year old?
0: Oh yeah, but that's my like, the whole childhood is being terrorized by my brothers and sisters. I shouldn't have been watching that movie when I was five or six. And then they would make fun of me if I didn't go in the water after. I had to be tough on top of watching the movie. I had to prove to them that I was still not scared of the shark, even though they all were. I was six. And so, yeah, it's to find my role in my family. It's to find my like the lifestyle I want to lead. Like I want to always be close to a beach, even though the sharks are out there. Um, and it's just so Amityville and the Vineyard just go hand in hand to me. So it's just such a defining movie for me. And by the way, Jaws Two is also a great film.
1: Mm, Jaws Two. Do you go to Jaws Three D also?
0: No, I don't go that far. That was not a good <laughs> film. So let's go the way. Jaws Two is where that's. It's just like Porky's. Porky's and Porky's revenge, and then that was
1: it. <laughs> I like that. Something I got out of this most recent viewing of Jaws, I've seen it a whole bunch of times, is that it is very like relevant today in a weird way.
0: That's interesting. What do you mean?
1: Yeah, so when when the Bruce first shows up and there's a first kill, Brody is immediately telling uh the mayor, we need to shut down the city. And then uh the mayor says, what are you talking about? This is a beach town. It's right before 4th of July. We can't have a panic. Like we need our, um, you know, we need our income here. And so when I was watching that, I was like, man, this like reminds me of sort of like the COVID shutdown and how all that sort of thing happened about how certain people were trying to say, no, no, we need to stop. I mean, they even brought in the scientist who yeah. said there's this huge problem that everyone is kind of ignoring. And then it kind of got worse from there. So I thought that was like wow, this is very very relevant uh, in in the sort of world you haven't thought you didn't think about that
0: parallels for sure.
1: Um, Yeah, so I thought that was (laughs) that was sort of eerie.
0: I like that guy. What was his name? You know, the real the fisherman guy in the first movie. That Irish guy uh, 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 was so great when he's like, "Come here, you son of a bitch!" and then just blew the shark up and shot him right in the mouth with that fire that fire hydrant. Remember? Yeah. Oh God, yeah. it's so good. And Jaws 2 is good because there's all the water skiing. But I do know a back behind the scenes story. In the first Jaws, when they go out and there's the, the girls at the beach and she's at South Beach and she's getting, they're pulling her. In real life, that girl broke a bunch of ribs when they pulled her. And you can hear her screaming going, it really hurts, it really hurts.
1: I did not know that. That's a good, that's a great story. I mean, there's so many funny, like technical stories about Jaws, like for film nerds, um, like the lore of how, uh, finicky the mechanical Bruce was led to, I think one of the strongest points of the movie. So the shark only actually has four minutes of screen time in Jaws. Um, but that's what makes it so scary. Uh, you know, I I think that if everything had worked out and they're showing it flying all over the place, I think the effectiveness of a lot of the scariest moments of that, of that movie wouldn't have worked at well. Um, you and know. you
0: also don't you know you don't have to have seen Jaws to know that that music, that score, that da, 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 is yeah.
1: Jaws. Yeah, yeah. And I mean that movie jumpstarted both Spielberg and John Williams' career. Uh, and it's funny you say that because I guess Spielberg, when John Williams introduced, like showed that. Music theme to Spielberg for the first time. Spielberg actually said like that's like, that's a that's a joke, right? And then they put it to film, and Spielberg obviously was like, "Well, this movie isn't the same without that score." So I think it's funny how how that all sort of turned out. Yeah, um, and
0: it was a big show for Steven Spielberg, apparently. Right? Like they ran out of yeah. money like three times or something, and he was over budget.
1: Yeah. And yeah, but then it ended up becoming the first summer blockbuster, um, which is you know obviously changed movie history forever. Another fact that I thought was funny here is. Uh, so you're going to need a bigger boat is probably the most iconic line from the movie, but it's also was ad-libbed. So that was not in the script.
0: I love ad-libbing. That's where I'm, that's my sweet spot too. When I'm on a set, I'm like, can I please not read the script? I just prefer to improvise. Well, that's a great line that he improvised. So his instincts were right.
1: Yeah, totally. And then my last thing here, and I would love to hear your opinion about this is that, uh, so in the scenes where the three guys, Quint Hooper and, um, and Brody are on uh, the boat together, and they're sort of waiting waiting out Bruce to show up again. I feel like they represent sort of the three parts of humanity. So uh, Quint is the man of faith, and I think his faith is to the sea and sharks. He's like, this is going to happen no matter what. Uh, Hooper is the man of science. He's a scientist, starting to figure out exactly how to do this. And then uh, Brody is the man of reason. And so I think all three of them together are sort of a very broad representation, but accurate representation of, I think, how people deal with sort of trauma and tragedies in here? Does that line up for you?
0: Yeah, I never looked at it that way. I think that's interesting. I wonder if there are more than three types of humanity, you know, three types of human beings or three types of humanity, because I would argue that there's probably like several, right? right? But those are just three of them. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah, yeah, correct.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I like that, you know? I mean, it's nice to It's nice to see somebody who has a different way of going through life than you do. That's completely like antithetical to the way that you behave. It's nice to see people like that connect Mm -hmm. and come together. People like to see those connections. You know, that human connection is not really reproducible anywhere else. I mean, with animals, obviously it is. But, you know, I think people really get warm hearted when they see that, especially people that don't belong together. It's again, going back to that, like, summer camp vibe. You know, you all experience this one thing together and you're bonded for life, but we'll probably never see each other again.
1: And then my last thing here is that you actually talk about Jaws, uh, in your book, especially I think in relation to your brother Chet specifically. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit, how, how it comes up in your book?
0: So my brother, well, when he left for he his trip where he passed away, he went hiking the Grand Teton mountains and he ended up falling off a cliff before that he sat with me at my house and he was telling me he was going on this vacation and I had never been with him without him in my entire life. So I didn't like it. And he was like, don't worry. I will never leave. He's like, I'll be there in two weeks tomorrow at this vineyard. I would never, ever leave you with these people. And I'll never, you know, I'll never leave you for the summer when, you know, Bruce is still in the water. He could get you yeah. and I'm the only one who could protect you. And, you know, those were the last things he said to me. So for that, so yeah, so that movie is probably sunk into my uh, subconscious. Thank you for reminding me (laughs) why.
1: (laughs) No worries. I did love that part too. um, That is sort of, obviously he was older than you. You were nine at the time, how he's relating a very... You know, real thing that you could relate to, you know, don't worry that Bruce won't get you. I,
0: yeah, my brother used to do this thing. We used to drive up to Martha's Vineyard, right? And he would like, I loved the air conditioning. Like, I loved cold air and blowing. Like, I live, grew up in New Jersey. There'd be winter storms, and I always had my windows open and my fans on. Like, I just liked freezing temperatures. I was like born going through menopause. And my brother was the only person in my family who understood that I needed to you know, in order to eat soup, I had to be topless. Like he respected like all of my quirks when I was a little girl, like I would have to take my clothes off to have a cup of soup because I would immediately start sweating. And we have this, there's a moment in, in my stand-up where he takes me to get clam chowder in Martha's Vineyard in Egertown And it's right at this little place called the Quarterdeck, which is right where Amityville is on the vineyard um, and where they stage Jaws. And I remember saying I wanted clam chowder and my brother, and my my parents had just had a long talk with me about covering up because I had little buds (laughs) sprouting. And my brother took me into town. I had a t-shirt on and we went to the quarter deck and he's like, what do you want on my clam chowder? He's like, "Uh, no, no, you're not allowed to have clam chowder because you're not allowed to be nude anymore from the waist up, mom and dad said. And I was like, I want the clam chowder. And he's like, we can't sit outside with you and your top off anymore. You know, things are happening. And I remember sitting in his car while he was standing next to the door, like blocking anyone from seeing a nine-year-old girl topless (laughs) eating my clam chowder while he protected me. And I remember thinking, this is love. Like, he gets me.
1: I love that. Uh, Are you a New England clam chowder or a New York clam chowder? type of new england. new england Yeah, me too i don't even get why people do new york style no,
0: people should stop that it's like a bloody mary with soup i don't understand
1: <laughs> um and this is on the topic of clam chowder where for people going over there what's the number one clam chowder spot do you have like a go-to place whenever you go back there oh
0: no i don't know what the number one clam chowder is but if you ever go to the vineyard go to edgartown and go to the quarter deck and get some fried clams fried clams and then get back.
1: Okay, there he does. Perfect. Um, fantastic. Any any last things about Jaws?
0: Mm, I was attracted to Roy Scheider. I remember being attracted to him. And that, yeah, and that, that's pretty much where my thoughts end on that topic. <laughs> hey,
1: everyone. I hope you're enjoying this week's episode of Movies That Changed My Life. If you are, don't forget to hit the subscribe button to make sure that you get all of our new episodes as soon as they are available. Thanks again for listening. Be sure to check out imdb.com slash podcasts for more content and to easily add movies that we talk about on this show to your IMDb watch list. Now let's get back to movies that changed my life with Chelsea Handler. So you already spoke. You have an HBO Max stand-up that got announced relatively recently. Um, I don't think there's a date or anything on that quite yet.
0: And um, we're we're seeing if we can shoot it. Maybe I go home to New Jersey to shoot it. But we have to get creative with the spaces. Hmm. So um, Dave Chappelle, you know, shot that thing right outside. So that's an option. You know, that's the safest way to do it. But we're looking. I'm hoping to have it out before the end of the year, though.
1: But in the meantime, people can watch Hello Privilege, It's Me, Chelsea, Uh, for those who haven't seen that yet. Do you want to speak about that a little bit?
0: Oh, yeah, that's on Netflix. That's a movie I made about a year ago about my own white privilege when I came um, upon, I started reading a lot of Black authors, and I was reading uh, Teheny C. Coates, and I was reading Robin DeAngelo, and I was reading just all this stuff on race. And I was like, oh, this, that was one of the documentaries I had filmed for my Chelsea does series on Netflix was about race. And that was the one I wanted to delve into further because we barely scratched the surface. And so hello privilege was, is for white people by a white person trying to figure out what does white privilege mean? Not just that you went to a fancy school or you have wealthy parents It means simply by the color of your skin, you are given advantages in this world. Even if you don't see them, you are. So uh, I didn't get that. And I got it at the end of the movie, but it was like, you know, it was a real learning experience and it was really uncomfortable. And I knew nobody else was gonna do that. So talk about white privilege as a white person because nobody would be that much of an asshole. So I did. And but I hung myself out to dry and admitted my own, you know, failing and understanding how severe the situation is and what it's like to grow up as a person of color in this country. And you know, and I wanted to repair my, you know, like my missteps and start doing work that is beneficial since I've been taking, taking, taking for so much, and since I'm in a position to do better than that.
1: Yeah, and something that stood stood out to me um, for that movie and your book. I mean, in chapter two, you're writing about white privilege and how I think you specifically say like, you've never been scared for getting pulled over. And I think that's great to hear from people who are and have been huge allies for minorities and the LGBTQ plus community like yourself. Um, I think it's great because you writing that and and making a film about it says like, Hey, you know, even as a great advocate and ally to communities, like people can continue to learn. Um, And I think that's a really important message that should, you know, should be remembered uh, especially to make sure that this movement that is going on right now isn't forgotten when people, you know, when summer comes and people sort of forget um, that no matter how much of an ally you are uh, or think you are, you could always do more and acknowledge things. So I, I really love that you to sort of open with that right away. And, and that's the overarching theme to the book.
0: Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that feedback.
1: All right. And then let's go to your last pick here. One I'm very, very excited to discuss. So this is 1994's Clifford, uh, directed by Paul Flaherty, <laughs> written, by, written by William Porter uh, as J.D. Rock, Stephen Campman as Bobby Von Hayes, starring Martin Short, Charles Grodin, Mary Steenburgen, and Ben Savage. Um, the synopsis here, for those who haven't seen it, is Clifford is a 10-year-old troublemaker who is played by Martin Short, uh, who puts not only his parents through hell, but also his, his uncle, uh, with whom his parents have discarded him, too. What is the story behind Clifford uh, hitting this list? I, I need to know. It is.
0: I think it is one of the funniest performances. First of all, Charles Grodin is one of the funniest people. And Martin Short is so funny. And their chemistry in this movie made me laugh so hard. Every time I see this movie, I just can't believe Martin Short. I just can't believe they allowed him to play like a 10-year-old boy. That in and of itself is enough to want to love this movie. But it's so good. It's so good. He's such an asshole, this kid. And it just defines everything that I think about kids. Like it was a perfect example, even though it wasn't a real one. I was like, oh, you're a small man that could be a kid. And I also find you annoying. So it cemented my, it cemented my appreciation for great comedy. And it also cemented my desire to remain childless and alone for as long (laughs) as possible.
1: Um, When was the first time you saw this movie?
0: I don't remember the first time seeing it. I remember watching it with my family, Martha's Vineyard, one summer, and we were all really stoned. And I remember laughing so hard that I peed in my pants in the scene where he's, God, I'm not going to, I'm going to butcher this. He (laughs) screwed, screwed over Charles Grodin in some way. And he's talking to him. Oh, and Mary Steenburgen—you know how oblivious she was in that movie about her. I mean, it's just so stupid. All of it is so stupid that it was such a a, a success.
1: My favorite line from that movie is when I think um, Martin Short, uh, Clifford, is in—I think the office of Charles Grodin—and Charles Grodin goes, "Uh, "Look at me like a normal boy.
0: You're doing it right now. Can you just act like a human boy for one minute here? Look at me like a person." You can't do it for more than a few seconds. Look at me like a human boy. Don't mess around with me. You're going to be back on that plane.
1: You understand me? I understand that I love you. All right, all right, all right. Let it go, let it go, let it go.
0: That's a good line, definitely. <laughs> like, a, like a normal boy.
1: There's so many unbelievable one-liners. So I haven't, I hadn't seen this uh, until I watched it for this interview. And I pride myself on like a weird comedy guy. Like I love weird comedies and sort of things like that. And this never crossed my mind. And I loved like every minute of it. It is so bizarre and so weird. Um, and I think like a
0: and so perfectly, so perfectly cast,
1: yes. right. Ugh. It's amazing across the board. Um, Martin Short, I feel like he, this sort of led him into sort of like a Jiminy Glick in a lot of ways. Is that that something like, I think, because Jiminy Glick was like a big kid. I mean, if you don't know Jiminy Glick, it was his old, um, it was a real talk show, but he played a character, Jiminy Glick, and he, you know, it was a late night talk show, but it was, so bizarre, and I remember watching Jiminy Glick when I was a kid, not really getting why I thought it was so funny. But like now, when I go back and watch YouTube videos or whatever, I'm like, oh, this obviously like influenced the way I like look at comedy and things like that. Um,
0: I also appreciate like a grown man doing that. You know, I can't <laughs> say that enough. Like, I like men that are willing to make asses out of themselves.
1: Yeah, he, I mean, he does so many insane things uh, in this movie. Like every uh, couple minutes. Uh, Clifford figures out another way to punish his uncle, uh, in exchange for not taking him to dinosaur world. Um, do do you have any, do you have any favorite pranks that, uh, Clifford does throughout the movie that stand out to you?
0: Well, uh, Charles Grodin's also like inability to alert Mary Steenburgen (laughs) in that what's actually happening. Like the frustration from him is so boiled over and it's such a like crescendo I, and and again, it's like you relate to both characters because you're like, I feel like that kid and I feel like that adult. Like I've been there.
1: I think like a lot of current comedy is influenced by this as well. Um, some weird things like, do you ever watch a Tim and Eric awesome show or have you seen that Tim and Eric? Things like that.
0: Yeah, yeah, I have. Like very
1: bizarre sort of really out there sketch comedy today I think doesn't exist without uh, the beautiful movie that is Clifford. Um
0: No, and I also love, you know, in that time when that movie came out, I think you said 94, it was like, that was like the height of sarcasm, and you can see that, like, laid throughout. You know how, like, now sarcasm isn't as, isn't like the currency that it used to be. Like, it used to be and niche right and now people are much more earnest and like careful with their you know everyone's politically correct and you're not trying to hurt people's feelings so sarcasm has taken like a back seat, which is like my personal brand of humor and earnestness has replaced it you know with like you know shows like Broad City where it's like they're you know it's more silly than mean spirited yeah you know so that's a good thing, also. Um, but but in the, when this came out, it was in that prime, like police academy type right. or Porky's type. Well, Porky's might have been in the '80s, but all in the same kind of vein. Uh, sarcasm was a hot commodity.
1: I, I don't think people understood how ridiculous it is that Martin Short was playing a ten-year-old, like was supposed to be a joke. Like, I read some of the bad reviews uh, on Clifford when it came out, and it seemed like people were like, why did they cast him to be a 10-year-old? I'm like, that's the point of the movie. Like, the point of the movie is to have him... Now
0: you you wouldn't get away with that. You can't be an adult and play a (laughs) 10-year-old.
1: But I I, I think it's so, so funny. The writers of the film, Stephen Campman and William Porter, um, they were so embarrassed by the final cut that they used pseudonyms (laughs) on the screen credit, which... Oh, really? Yes. (laughs)
0: they didn't realize what kind of gem they had how did it not do at the box office Clifford
1: so it had a budget of 19 million opening weekend it made 2.5 million and went on to grow 7.4 million
0: so they, so they broke even so
1: a big you know bu- budget of 19 million and it only made seven million oh,
0: so they did not break even. <laughs> I'm glad you can thank me later for introducing you to this film. Yeah, uh,
1: I, I love it. It was it was so so funny. I was like dying watching it on the couch, and my wife had seen it before, and she was like, "You never seen this?" So I put it on, and she was like, "You're gonna love this movie." And the whole time, I was just like laughing nonstop. There's so many <laughs> crazy crazy moments. Um, it's
0: a little bit like Step Brother, you know that movie? Yeah, totally. It's like-
1: uh, and then the last thing on Martin Short here, just the full range of Martin Short. Uh, the film opens up where he plays uh, a seventy-year-old pastor um, at a private school, helping out uh, a young Ben Savage who attempted to blow up the gymnasium. Um, and so we got a we got a sixty-year age jump from Martin Short. I mean that that shouldn't go unnoticed, right?
0: <laughs> he could still do a sixty-year age jump, though. Haven't you seen him? Yeah. I mean, I've seen him do some things. I'm like, wait, what? Who is that?
1: <laughs> Um,
0: he's like a little shape shifter.
1: <laughs> yeah. I like that shape shifter. Um, when you saw this, were you like, this is a movie for me or was it? And then, or sort of when you saw this, you were like, Oh, my comedy can go this direction.
0: No, I thought this is a movie that will always make me laugh. Like this could be a go-to movie to watch repeatedly and have the same experience. Cause it will always hit me in like a funny spot. You know, it's like how I feel about three's company. Like it's, comforting and funny
1: uh were those old martin short and like um steve martin comedies like uh were those like a staple in your household at all growing up
0: yeah definitely we had all that steve martin all those guys you know all that like saturday night live guys and like john belushi jim belushi that was a little before my time but then john belushi was before my time and then like chris farley you know all those guys uh, and those SNL characters. Yeah, I grew up on those movies, you know, those beautiful, like, remember those uh, Kimberly Williams movies that Steve Martin used to, like,
1: mm-hmm.
0: those Nancy Meyer, like, you know, wedding, all the, the wedding. Uh,
1: Father of the Bride. The
0: Father of the Bride series. Yeah, I grew up with a lot of that stuff that painted this like beautiful Nancy Meyers world and where everybody got along with their families and everybody had khakis and new cars. And I like, <laughs> where the f*** is this?
1: <laughs> and Clifford is sort of the opposite of that. I mean, we were talking about the time it came out, right? It, it like the setting is like a picturesque, like you said, like Nancy Myers ish movie. And the, but then Clifford just like dropped in the middle of it, just like sets off a completely different tone. Um, which I think is so, so funny. And anyone who hasn't seen it, please, please do. So awesome. So do you see any through line between steel Magnolia's Clifford and jaws?
0: No, zero. Other than zero. that, other than that, I like all three of them. <laughs> That's
1: line. So for me, it seems to be just from this conversation that you just have strong memories of, of viewing it with other people. Do you, do you, do you ever watch movies alone or do you sort of always watch it? Oh no, all the time.
0: That was definitely a group movie though. Clifford is a group movie. Steel Magnolias is a group movie. And so is Jaws. Jaws. I rewatch all the time with my nieces and nephews. They love it. Um, but they're all group movies, you know, better, all three of them is better, better to watch a movie with one of those three movies with people than to be alone, in fact.
1: Very wise words. Uh, Thank you. This was a ton, a ton of fun. Life Will Be the Death of Me and You Too is now available uh, on paperback and you can get it wherever paperback books are sold. This was nice and fun. Uh, Look forward to putting this together. People are going to love it, I'm sure. Oh,
0: thank you so much. Nice to see you.
1: Yes, thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to check out imdb.com slash podcasts for more content and to easily add movies that we talk about on the show to your IMDb watch list. Thanks again for listening.